So we've got communion after this, so I'll try not to be too long. Famous last words. So I found this on the internet, so it must be true. According to a certain news agency, on April the 28th at the 1992 Galveston County Fair and Rodeo, a bull, a steer named Husker, it's a good name for a bull, weighing in at 1,190 pounds, no less, was named Grand Champion, the, I guess the best bull at the rodeo. The bull was sold at an auction for $13,500 and slaughtered a few days after the competition. So far, so good. When vets examined the carcass, said a contest official, they found something suspicious. They discovered evidence of what is known as an airing. To give steers, bulls, a better appearance, competitors have been known to inject air into the animal's hides with a syringe or a needle attached to a bicycle pump. Pumped long enough, they've got themselves what looks like a grand champion steer, though of course it's against the rules. Surprise, surprise, the Galveston County Fair and Rodeo Association withdrew the championship title and the sale money from Husker. Okay, true story. A pumped-up bull steer is like a hypocritical person. We all know what a hypocrite is. A hypocrite is a man or a woman who puts on a mask and pretends to be something which they're not in the innermost person. The word hypocrite describes the insincere person who pretends to be pious or virtuous when he or she really is not. We know that. Hypocrisy is frequently condemned, challenged and rebuked and exposed by Jesus throughout his ministry. In all the records of the Gospels, Jesus spoke to sinners with sympathy, kindness and forgiveness. But for the Pharisees, the hypocritical religious leaders, he used the strongest possible language of condemnation. He called them, amongst other things, blind guides, whitewashed tombs and vipers. The idea of the whitewashed tomb is that the Jewish people would put um, a stone covering on the tomb and they would paint it, whitewash it. It would look beautiful and neat on the outside, but of course, inside the tomb, it's full of bones, dead men's bones and everything unclean. It's all an outward show, isn't it? Inside is something corrupt and foul, which is concealed by a beautiful outward appearance. He also talks about cleaning the outside of a cup as well, the inside being full of greed and wickedness. At one point, I think it's in Matthew 23, Jesus says this about the Pharisees. He says, everything they do is done for men to see. I think if you had to sum up the ministry, the work of the Pharisees, that would sum it up pretty well. Everything they do is done for men to see. What a damning indictment, what a terrible thing to be said about a person. Everything you do is done for men to see, especially when you, you take great pains to show everybody you're doing this for God, for his glory, but actually it's done for men to see. So they would speak well of you. Today's passage deals with a manifestation of hypocrisy, a very common manifestation, which I'm sure, if we're honest, affects all of us, or has affected all of us at certain times. Making a pretense of doing good, of doing religious and virtuous things in order to win the praise of other people. Now, I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up, but which of us can really honestly say that we've never ever done that at all in our lives? In these passages, I mean, they're so simple, I almost don't want to add anything to them because even a child could understand what's been said here. But I'm going to do my best to bring out a few ideas and applications. 
Jesus gives us three different examples of behavior that a devout Jewish person of his time would be assumed to engage in, to be engaging in. So these were things that the Jewish people were were called to do by the law. And in that particular peer group, in that particular tribe of devout Jewish people, these things would have been very respectable, very um, worthy things to do. Okay? I think there's an implication here because the Sermon on the Mount is is written in a Jewish context, but it's also for us, for later generations of Christians, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. I think there's an implication here that these things are also to be practiced in some way by God's people, wherever they may be, at whatever time of history. Okay. So look at the verses together. So chapter 6, verse 1 to 4, is about giving to the needy. Verses 5 to 6 are about prayer. Actually, Aaron is going to take over next week. He's going to concentrate on prayer. I'm only going to touch on it tonight. And then the third thing is 16 to 18, which is about fasting. Now, I don't think these, these are meant to be exhaustive and comprehensive lists of all the things that people might do. But I think these are examples of the kinds of things that people could do in order to win the praise of others. So I think if you look at these, these different categories, within them you could, you could kind of put a whole vast range of Christian Christian spiritual disciplines and practices. Almost everything fits in one of these categories. Things you do for God, things you do to help other people, things you do to your body, self-discipline, practices of devotion, stuff like that. So almost everything can be included in these things. So, so we, we shouldn't think, well, I'm, I'm not doing these things wrong, so I, I can do something else, because it, the attitude is what Jesus is talking about here, and he's giving various examples, which would, would have been very relevant to the people. Each example here follows a very simple pattern. Okay? So first of all, you've got an instruction or a command from Jesus, an example of hypocritical behavior, and a command to not be like that. There's an assertion that these people who do this have received their reward in full. The word in full there is a term which is taken from the marketplace, which means that something has been paid for in full. It's been stamped. It's been paid like a receipt. After that assertion, you've got a description of how things should be done amongst citizens of the kingdom. Jesus says, but when you, he says that several times, but when you, you're not to be like this, but when you do that, you should do like this. Disciples of Jesus, citizens of the kingdom, this is how you should behave. And then at the end of every section is a promise of a divine reward. So a promise that God will reward the people who do things in the right way. Talk a bit about rewards before we get stuck into the text. Now, if you do good deeds, you are guaranteed to get a reward of some kind, almost guaranteed to get a reward. So that sounds like good news, isn't it? Doesn't it? Because you know, you're going to get a reward whatever you do. But you know what? Those rewards are not equally valuable, are they? So you might get a reward of some kind, but this reward may be a, might, might be a lesser reward than the reward you could have had had you done things in the right way. And you have to choose, you and I have to choose which kind of reward we want to get. I think Matthew's Gospel is full of very, very stark choices. Especially the Sermon on the Mount. It's very black and white. There's no grey areas. Jesus says you need to make a choice. Which kingdom are you in? How are you going to live? Which which kind of surface are you building the, the, the house of your life upon? Which road are you on? The broad road that leads to destruction, the narrow way that leads to life. There's all kinds of choices the trouble is today, people, well, not just today, I think for all times in history, people want some kind of grey area, don't they? They want some kind of middle ground to pick and choose what they want. But well, Jesus won't have that. 
He won't have that. He says, you know, you need to make a stark choice. What do you want? What path are you going to choose? What reward are you going to choose? What are you going to work for? Where is your treasure? Just after this section, there's a bit about treasure in heaven, which you all know very well. You know, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And I think this, this kind of sums up the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. Where is your treasure? What are you working towards, as it were? What, the things that you value, where are they? The things you value most, are they in this life? Or are they in the kingdom to come? Are you willing to put aside things that the people of this world strive for and cling on to and hold on to and work for and, and value and prize? Are you willing to give up those things for the sake of a much better reward to come, treasure in heaven? There's a verse in Psalm 17 which says this, By your hand save me from such people, Lord, from those of this world whose reward is in this life. Look at the Beatitudes which we studied a few weeks ago. The Beatitudes are full of these kind of choices. Some people seek after easy life, worldly pleasures, the right to get revenge, the right to commit adultery. The, the desire to kind of preserve their lives, lives at all costs. That's what this world holds on to. And these are the kind of things that Jesus addresses in the Sermon on the Mount. But you know what? The citizens of the kingdom, as, as outlined in the Beatitudes, they're willing to give up these things for the sake of the kingdom. Christians may seem to be losing out because we don't have all these things. But actually what Jesus says is that we are the most blessed people, even though it doesn't seem like it to the world. We are blessed beyond all measure, even though we give up all these things the world chases after. We may have to give them up for the sake of the kingdom. So a big part of this is where is your reward? Is it in this life primarily? Is this what you're working towards? Because people have got no hope. That's all they work towards, isn't it? That's all they, they can hope in is as much pleasure and comfort and ease and sin in this life as they possibly can get. But the people of God say, no, I've got something greater waiting for me. And I'm willing to put up with all kinds of hardship and endurance um, is what's going to characterize my life in order to obtain the kingdom. There are two rewards mentioned here in, with regard to, to doing things um, for the praise of others. The first is human praise. This is, a, this is a now reward. This is something that people get now. So the motive of this kind of act of doing good is is to be thought well of and spoken well of by other people. Okay? There's something in this, isn't there, that wants to be praised by other people. I, I can't put my finger on it. It's a manifestation of sinful nature. We, we crave after this, don't we? The, the praise and the, the affirmation and the approval of others. Now, I, I think, I'm not, not a Brightonian by birth, but I think Brighton is actually full of this kind of attitude. Particularly so. I mean, it manifests itself everywhere. It bubbles up in every place where humans are found. Our city does have this, this reputation, doesn't it? It likes to think of itself as a very, very socially con conscious city, a very caring city, a very moral city. Now, a lot of good is done in Brighton, isn't it? Isn't it? A lot of good is done. Lot, there is lots of genuine care, and I'm sure there is. But also, it's very easy, isn't it, for, for this kind of, um, kind of behaviour, doing good to others, fighting for kind of minority rights, whatever it might be, all good and worthy things perhaps in some ways. But to do these things because they win, win you kind of approval in your particular tribe, in your particular peer group, 
You know, you've heard this term virtue signaling, haven't you? Now, it's used quite a lot these days. People who try to pretend they're concerned about a particular cause because they think it enhances their social status, perhaps on the internet, social media. Once again, I'm not suggesting that everybody who does anything good and virtuous is, is guilty of this, but I think there's a temptation for this to happen. This kind of boastfulness about the things that people do to help others. Flattery. It's all part of the social advancement, part of playing the game, isn't it, to kind of win approval of others, to be accepted by your peer group. What wonderful, caring and tolerant people we are. People love in Brighton, don't they, to be considered to be tolerant and caring. And that wins your approval. There are certain things that you do, certain causes that you can, can give yourself to which will enhance your status amongst people in Brighton. Why do you think the Pride Festival is so big? A very aptly named festival, the Pride Festival. Let's all show how tolerant we are. What wonderful, tolerant and caring people. I mentioned social media. Social media has got lots of good uses, but it's, it's a terrible place for people trying to show off about how virtuous they are and how much they've done to help others. Cultivating an image of yourself, carefully crafted to show only the best aspects to you. You know, liking particular causes and boasting about yourself. But it's, it's not just Brighton, is it? It's universal. It emerges in different places in different ways. The sad thing is, people soon forget you, don't they? People, you might win the approval of people today, but who knows, a few months down the line, you're soon forgotten that somebody else comes on the scene. What happens if you're exposed as a fraud? What happens if, if you're ashamed in some way? Isn't it sad? We've all met people who, who seem to need a fix of approval from others. You can see it a mile off, often, can't you? People are so desperate to be approved and to be liked and to be popular. But what happens if, if one day you're exposed and people see the real you coming through? We can't point the finger, can we? Because if we're honest, as I said, most of us have this within us as well. The church, if we're Christians, is, is our kind of peer group, our subculture, our tribe, if you like. And the church can be a very fertile breeding ground for these kinds of attitudes. Showing off self-advancement, pride, you know, we've got this thing today, this kind of Christian celebrity culture. Um, celebrity preachers, mega church pastors, some of them have been publicly disgraced and humiliated because of moral failure. But, you know, we've got access now to, to a vast range of all these different preachers around the world and musicians and artists. Christian celebrity, fame, what a dangerous thing that can be. You know the sad thing, guys, the saddest thing about all this is if you try to pretend to be spiritual and godly in order primarily to please other people and impress them, you're just cheating yourself, aren't you? You're a fraud and you know it. I could go on the internet and I could buy myself a fake degree. I have actually got a real degree, okay? Not a very good one, but I've got one. But I could buy myself a fake, degree, a fake doctorate from some claptrap university somewhere. And I could go and show off, look, I've earned this degree. Or I was thinking of the example of Olympic gold medal, but none of you would believe me, would have I come wearing a gold medal and said, I won that. You just laugh, laugh in my face. But a fake degree, you can show off, you can pretend you've earned it, but you know you haven't earned it. 
you know, you haven't got the satisfaction of knowing you've actually done this, you've worked for this. It's just a fraud, a sham. And that's exactly the same for people who try to pretend to be spiritual, but actually there's nothing inside. It's just skin deep, and deep within there's this corruption, this pathetic desire which we all have in us, within us to be approved of people, to be praised, to be spoken well of. You know, guys, one day it will be brutally exposed. One day it will be brutally exposed before the judgment seat of Christ. All those things which we did to impress other people will be exposed on that day and opened up for all to see. And then we will see really what was done for Christ. Don't let's use devotion to God as a vehicle for self-promotion. Isn't that repugnant? Doesn't it? If you're honest, isn't there something within you that kind of rebels against this idea that somehow we're using God, using faith, using the Christian faith as a kind of vehicle to advance ourselves? Isn't that sad? Isn't that offensive to God who sees, sees it exactly for what it is and calls it out, or will call it out? Now, the two rewards. What are these rewards that Jesus speaks of here? Well, the first reward we were talking about was human praise. But we're talking now about God's rewards, the rewards that God gives to his faithful people. Well, the first reward, you can see this in two ways, and I'm going to try and explain this in the best way I can. I hope I make sense. The first way we can look at this reward that God gives is a place in the kingdom of heaven. Do we enter the kingdom of heaven by doing good works? No, we don't. Not at all. That's heresy. We enter the kingdom of heaven by faith in Jesus Christ, by trusting in him and his finished work. That's how you get to be a child of the kingdom, a citizen of the kingdom, a child of God. I'll just read what I wrote here. I'm not going to bother trying to try and explain it in a different way. There's a type of person who may look righteous to others, but who knows nothing of true heart righteousness and will never enter the kingdom. A person whose so-called spiritual life is nothing more than a vehicle for self-promotion. A person who pretends to be worshipping God and glorifying God, but is actually all about glorifying themselves, whose life is marked by hypocrisy. This proves they're not a citizen of the kingdom. However, a person who loves God from the heart and is willing to put aside now rewards like the praise of others for the sake of the future reward of the kingdom is a true believer. If your life is characterized by a desire to serve God rather than please people, it's a sign that you belong to the kingdom and that one day you'll be rewarded by a place in that kingdom. So in other words, what I was trying to say there is that although the kingdom of heaven, a place in the kingdom of heaven is a gift, the kinds of people that do things to, praise, to, to please God and not to please men who are willing to put aside that, that desire to be exalted by people, That is evidence, one of the evidences that you are part of the kingdom. So if you persevere in that, if you keep on seeking to please the Lord and trusting him, that is evidence that you are called by him and that you are one of his people and that one day you will inherit the kingdom. You haven't earned it, it's a gift, but your conduct, your life, your attitude, your desire to praise God, your sincerity proves that you are a citizen of the kingdom and not a citizen of this world who wants everything now. We'll lose everything. 
So the kingdom, kingdom itself is the reward for faithfulness, but also there's actually going to be a commendation for faithful people on the last day. This is the second aspect of the reward. In a sense, our works will be judged. Not for salvation. If you've trusted in Christ, you will be saved. If you've truly trusted in him, if you've been born again. But there will be a time when God will call us up before him on the last day to look at our lives. To look at our lives and see how we've lived. Were we faithful? Were we faithful with the things that he's given us? And what is, what is terrifying, what is deeply encouraging is that on that day, God will not just look at the things that we've done, recorded in, in a book somewhere, but he will look at the motives of our hearts as well. God is not concerned just about us doing the right things. He's concerned about us doing them for the right reasons and in the right way. What kind of God would just want box ticking? You tick that box, you've done that deed, he doesn't care about your heart. No, God is not like that. God is deeply concerned about the heart, the motive. 1 Corinthians 4 says this, Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that, that time, each will receive their praise from God. And then he talks about this, this metaphor of building on the foundation, which is Jesus Christ. He says, be careful how you build. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though as one escaping through the flames." What I take this to understand, what I understand this to mean is that there will be this, this judgment of works where we stand before for Christ, we, where our salvation is one, but he will expose us and look deeply into the things that we did. He will judge what we've done as to whether it has any lasting value, whether it's just burnt up because it was done for selfish motives, done for the desire of promoting ourselves before other people. A good deal, a lot of good deeds, effort and hard work may well be burned up on that day. Things that people have given their lives to, have worked hard for, may well be burned up and destroyed on that day and proved worthless, proven worthless because people did it for the wrong motives. It's terrifying for a hypocrite to know that God sees not only what you do, but he sees your heart as well. You cannot fool God. You can fool people, but you can't fool him. But isn't it so encouraging for a Christian? It should be encouraging. I don't want us to, we, should be, we should be sober about this, but not terrified by this as Christians. Because God will not forget the deeds that have been done for his glory. Even though nobody else may have seen these deeds being done, God sees them and God has not forgotten. And God will commend us and praise us and reward us on that day when all men's secrets are exposed, including ours. Well done, good and faithful servant, will say the Lord, those who've been faithful. Now, back to Matthew chapter 6. That was an introduction, rather a long introduction. The first section, giving to the needy. What could be wrong with helping the poor, with helping those who are in need? It's a very important part of the believer's life. It's always been part of the life of the community of God's people, giving Helping those who are less fortunate, not fortunate, you know what I mean, less, um, people who have less than us, people who are needy, people who are suffering, alleviating that and helping them. 
It's very important. It's on the heart of God. God is concerned about the poor, and we should be as well. You know, if we become a church without a concern for the needy around us, both in our city and further afield, I think we've lost something very important because it's very much on God's heart to be concerned for the poor. You've got to be wise how you do that. There are wise ways and less wise ways of doing that, but we should be concerned. And there should be, amongst all of us, individual giving, as, as we're able to, as we feel compelled to, as we want to, cheerfully, we should be giving money to help those who need help. But Jesus says here in verse 1, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do. Are you telling me that really people in the time of Jesus used to go and give their money in the synagogue or in the temple, announcing it with trumpets? Well, it could be that Jesus is just using a metaphor as a kind of picture, but I think there's probably, there probably were instances where this happened. It's vulgar, isn't it? Vulgar. Somebody giving their money and then sort of announcing it. You know, the band strikes up. Look at this generous person. Ostentatious displays of generosity. So everybody would applaud them and say, wow, what a generous man. It could have been part of a festival. They had trumpets at festivals. The Jews liked their trumpets, those shafars, things. Perhaps they did it to kind of draw a crowd. Blowing one's own trumpet. I wonder if that's where it came from, blowing one's own trumpet. How many times have you and I blown our own trumpets? Well, the pity for these people, the sad thing is these people have received their reward in full. They won't get anything else on that last day. They get absolutely nothing from God because they did it for the praise of men. What should we do? What's the right way? What's the way for the citizens of the kingdom to give? Well, Jesus tells us very clearly in verse 3. When you give to them, but when you give to the needy, talking to his disciples, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be done in secret. Interesting. Is it possible to, to give and not know you've given something? Well, of course not. We all know, don't we, when we've given some money or given something to somebody. But this is the kind of picture that Jesus gives us. Don't even let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. What he's saying here, I believe, he's saying don't even keep your own record of this. Don't keep a mental record. Well, nobody else saw me give that money, but I know I've done it. And guess what? I haven't even told anybody about it. What a, what a great person I am. You see, how it, see how it works? It's, it's terrible, isn't it? It's kind of Everywhere you go, you can see pitfalls. Don't keep your own record. Forget about it. Don't, don't you know, remember it. Just let it go. Who cares? It wasn't your money anyway. God gave you that money to give. Remember that story. I love, I love this story, that the sheep and the goats, where Jesus separates people on the last day. And the sheep are those that have kind of cared for the poor and helped those who are needy. He's talking about Christian people. Helping other Christians, I believe, primarily. Those people were absolutely shocked when Jesus says to them, you know, whatever you did for the least of these little, little ones, these brothers of mine, you actually did it for me. They said, when do we see you, Lord, naked or hungry or thirsty? He said, whatever you did for these little ones, you did it for me. But these people, they're genuinely baffled. They're surprised. They, they didn't remember doing anything. They didn't kind of keep a mental log of it. It just went. It's part of who they were, natural goodness. And I think that's, that's the hallmark of a true Christian. And you think about the godliest people you know. They don't blow their own trumpet, do they? There's a goodness 
that comes out of them, which is just quiet and dignified and humble. Earlier in this chapter, Jesus said, let your light shine before men. He said, a city on the hill cannot be hidden. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. Have we got a contradiction here? You know, here he's saying, don't do your righteous acts before people. And then he's saying there, well, you actually should shine your light before men. I think what he's saying, there's no contradiction. Both are true at the same time. The godly Christian, who's not seeking any reward but for the praise of God, the glory of God, quietly goes about his life or her life doing good, serving others, but with no, no thought of any kind of human praise or reward. And that cannot be hidden in a dark world. People will see that. It will be obvious. That's how we should shine before people. But it should not be done in order to win the praise of people. If that makes sense. Remember what Jesus said? He said, he said um, that they may, may praise your Father in heaven. Those people are not seeking praise for themselves. They're seeking to deflect that praise to the Father to whom it belongs. So that was the first section. I don't think I need to say any more about that. The second section is about prayer. Now Aaron's going to, going to deal with this next week. But just a very quick overview. Don't pray like the hypocrites, says Jesus. Publicly praying on street corners and in the synagogues. Now, I want you to, to be aware here. Jesus is not saying it's wrong to pray in public. But he's talking about ostentatious, showy pray, prayers in order to impress people. The Jews were supposed to pray three times a day. What he's talking about here is a person who is so keen to impress other people that they're on the way to the temple, the synagogue, and you know what, they just have to pray there and then because they're so spiritual. You know, right on the street corner. They can't wait to get to the synagogue. They're overcome by, by devotion. Of course, it's all, all a sham, isn't it? It's all a show, it's all fake. And that prayer will die in exactly the same place where it's offered. Sorry. So it's not saying that we shouldn't pray as part of a group. It's right to pray. The early church did that and we do that as well. But it's talking here about showing off. Spurgeon, I have to mention Spurgeon every time. It's a tradition now. Spurgeon was alarmed when he heard one of his students begin this prayer. And I might not even be pronouncing these words correctly. This is how this, this, bloke, this man prayed in his class. Okay? O thou that art enkinchered with an auriferous, auriferous zodiac. That's how he started his prayer in, the, in their devotion time. I know the word zodiac. <laughs> Enkinctured, auriferous. Spurgeon was deeply alarmed when he heard this, this student preaching, praying this, this so-called prayer. That man proved to be an imposter. Very soon after that, he left the college where he was learning, he was studying, and he became a playwright and an actor. He kind of gave up any kind of pretension to the ministry, the Christian ministry. And Spurgeon, Spurgeon could see that coming a mile off. Spiritual people do not need to pray prayers like that, using you know, long words to, to try and impress people. Do you think God's impressed by that? But if you're praying to God, why use, why use words like that? doesn't make any sense does it probably some of the other students were quite impressed they said, wow, what, what a spiritual man what a spiritual man once again using God as a tool to impress other people what should you do Jesus tells us says, go home go home into your closet into your room and pray privately if, if you're tempted to do that if that's the kind of person you are don't do it go home pray privately to God 
And God, God will see it and God will be pleased and God will reward you. It doesn't matter if anybody else sees it or not. Our prayers should always be directed towards God and not towards people. We need to be careful, don't we? I've done it myself. I'll hold my hands up. I've prayed at times uh, in a way which probably subconsciously has been designed to impress other people. It is right when we pray publicly to, to consider how our prayers sound to others, but we're not doing it to impress them. They would speak well of us. Imagine you got up at 4 a.m. every day to pray. Prayed for hours and hours before breakfast and came to church. You just couldn't resist letting it slip to your friend. Oh, you're looking tired this morning. Yeah, I've been praying since 4 a.m. this morning. We do stuff like that, don't we, sometimes? We just cannot resist letting slip, telling people what we've done, how, how devout we are. It is right to, to live, a God, live a godly example, be a godly example, live a disciplined life, and for other people to see that and take, take examples from us. But may, may God protect us from this kind of attitude, this craving for human approval, even amongst Christians. The last section is about fasting. The Old Testament commanded, the law commanded fasting once a year on the Day of Atonement. During the exile, the Jewish people developed it a little bit, and they did it a bit more often. Um, In the Old Testament, the Jews were condemned and criticized by God for fasting in a wrong way. The Pharisees, by the time of Jesus, were fasting twice a week, also part of their show to impress people. In the New Testament, Jesus fasted, and he seems to assume that his followers will also fast in the future. Now, we haven't got time today. We're not talking about fasting in particular. So this could be a sermon in itself. But we do read in the New Testament, in the church in Antioch, they were praying and worshipping and fasting, and they sent out Paul and Barnabas. I think that we should, as Christians, consider fasting from time to time. Um, The Puritans called it soul-fattening fasting. You know, you, you, you go without food for a period because you want to concentrate and focus yourself on the things of God, perhaps praying for a particular reason. But you know what? That can be, can be very helpful for your soul. It can fatten your soul, feed you, and strengthen you. But I don't think there's a law in the Christian life. There's, there's freedom to do this if we want to. We don't have to do it, but I think it's something we might consider. One of my previous churches, a little child in the church was seriously ill, critically ill, and the whole church rallied round and fasted and prayed, and the child's life was spared. I'm not suggesting fasting is like twisting God's arm. The more we fast, the more likely God is to answer us. But it does show we're serious, serious enough to do, to do business with God and put aside food, a full stomach, for the sake of coming before him in a special way. But if we do do it, don't make a show of it. Let's not make a show of it. You know, the Jews used to put ashes on their heads when they fasted so everybody would see. So they, they disfigure their faces kind of grimacing. Oh, what's the matter with you today? Oh, I've been fasting. Imagine a group of mates sitting around discussing like, how long they've been fasting. Okay, oh, I fasted two days, that's nothing. I fasted five days. You know, oh, I've done ten days. But you've lost it. You've lost it, haven't you? When you start doing that, you've absolutely lost it. You've completely lost the meaning of fasting. Who cares how long you fasted, how much you fasted? If you do that, you have no reward from God. 
That was fasting. We, we can talk more about that another time. Now, conclusion, practical examples. Now, there's, there's a myriad of examples I could have given you. But I, I put this. Many fruits grow on the tree of pride and self-love. Do we get indignant when other people are praised and we're not praised? People are thanked. Do we get indignant when other people seem to get respect and we get passed over? We shouldn't be, should we? So I did that and nobody thanked me, but somebody else did something. They they got praised in front of the church. Well, does it matter? My God has seen it and I'm doing it for him, not for people. What about this false penitence? Now, this, this is very subtle. We're so, so, it's so fickle, isn't it, the human heart? False penitence. Now, I could stand up here and I could give you kind of histrionics, you know, show of emotion. Oh, what a terrible sinner I am. It's all part of the act. It's all part of the play. I'm not really penitent. I'm just trying to show you what a devout person I am, how deeply sorry I am with my tears. Now, listen, we, we can't assume that when people do this, they are being hypocritical. They may genuinely be like that, but... We need to be careful, don't we? Performance in the church. What about showing off with regard to abilities and gifts? Some people are very, very gifted. We're all gifted in different ways, but some people have very prominent gifts which are obvious for everyone. You know, it could be music for someone, it could be preaching, it could be lots of different things. How easy it is to do these kinds of things in order to get the praise of people. And let me just say, I don't think sometimes we help people, but it's right that we encourage people. We should encourage one another. But sometimes there's a kind of hero worship in the church where we almost put people on pedestals, don't we? We say, thank you, brother, that was amazing. You feed people's egos. It's a very dangerous place to be. I'm not saying we shouldn't, shouldn't encourage each other, but we need to be very careful. We don't lead someone into temptation by making them you know, kind of almost addicted to the praise of people. Spiritual gifts, ability. There are some churches which kind of focus a lot on this idea of your best life now. You know, be the best you can be. And it's very dangerous, isn't it, in those kinds of churches? Because if it's all about me and my promotion and myself and my happiness and my joy, everything now in this life, something's wrong, isn't it? No, actually, we should be abased in this life. Yeah, in a sense, it's true. We should enjoy this life. But we're not here just to kind of enjoy the things that the world chases after. We're here to look to the kingdom, which is where our true home lies. Now, in our kinds of churches, reformed churches, evangelical churches, what do we prize highly? Well, isn't it Bible knowledge? Bible knowledge is a very, very good thing. I pray that all of us would have a very deep and profound knowledge of the Bible, the word of God. But isn't that a way we can win respect in our peer group? How well you know the Bible, how well you can quote scripture. You might have been at some kind of Bible college. All well and good. We must be careful. We don't hold people up on a pedestal because they know something that we don't know. Do we embellish stories? We tell people how God has used us. We can't resist telling people and kind of exaggerating a little bit to make ourselves look better, to make it look like God has used us in a powerful way. Once again, it's right that we share testimonies of how God, testimonies of how God has used us, but not, not to embellish them, to make ourselves look good. Let me tell you an example from my life. So this is a true, you'll think, think I'm pathetic. So once I was at my desk and I was 
just reading something, not in the Bible, and somebody came in, I immediately picked up my Bible, and pretended I was reading my Bible. Isn't that pathetic? Another example, last week, this, is, this shows what it's like. I'm not saying this to make you think I'm, some, I'm humble. This is true. It creeps up everywhere in the church. I was in the kitchen. There was a big pile of washing up to do. I thought, a thought came into my mind. Should I do this washing up now? Maybe somebody will come in and see me doing the washing up. I think, wow, pathetic. Creeps up absolutely everywhere. Maybe you're different from me. We need to be careful. We're not to do things for people, for praise, but for God. I remember my old boss years ago, he was a Christian. Um, I was in the office working late. He didn't know I was there. I saw him running around with a hoover cleaning the whole office. He didn't know that I was there. Nobody knew. I saw him. I thought, that, that's true leadership. That man is doing something which nobody else will see and know about. But God knows and God sees. So, today is not difficult to understand, I don't think, but we should consider Jesus. That's always a good thing to do, the best thing, to consider Jesus. Jesus said, I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. When you think about it, nobody in history has done more good than Jesus. Nobody probably prayed more than him, I'm sure, and Jesus himself fasted for a long period, 40 days. And yet Jesus never, ever once promoted himself, did he? Not in the least. In fact, when, when people wanted to tell others about what Jesus had done, he said, don't tell the people. Many times he said, don't tell people. He wasn't drawing attention to himself. He wasn't a showman. He didn't need the praise of people. His greatest pleasure was bringing glory to his father. Imagine Jesus. Think about Jesus. He, he wasn't affected at all by the opinions of people. Jesus didn't go away and mull over the day and say, oh, I, said, I shouldn't have said this. Oh, what will people think of me? I shouldn't have said, I should have put it a different way. Jesus never had that. He didn't care about the opinions of men. He didn't care about their praise. What does it say in that poem, Rudyard Kipling, you know, the, uh, to, to meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same? Jesus was like that. Praise or criticism was just the same to him because God was honoured by his life. God the Father. Jesus' journey of obedience didn't lead to all people speaking well of him. Where did it lead? We know, don't we? It led to the cross. When Jesus died on that cross, he didn't die a heroic death. It wasn't a glamorous death. It was a shameful death. It was a shameful, sad ending as it appeared to the life of Jesus. He spent all his time doing good, serving, preaching the word. He ends up dying as a blasphemer executed, blasphemer in the light on the Roman cross. That's where his obedience led him. There's a man who had no desire for anything in this world but only to please the Father and to be rewarded by him for faithfulness. And he was, of course, when he was raised up and glorified. When we look at the cross, who are we to seek glory for ourselves? You know, friends, we as Christians, we're called to be just like Jesus, to be perfect, as our Heavenly Father is perfect. We're called to emulate him. How how silly, how, how pathetic it seems now, doesn't it, all the things that we do to try and get praise from people. I, I suggest, actually, that we, we ask the Holy Spirit to, to 
shine his light upon us, upon our hearts, and to expose those things, but which perhaps we're not even aware of ourselves, which are hidden in the deep recesses. Because I think most of us have mixed motives. We're very complicated beings. We need God to expose these things and deal with them. But let's look to the cross, look to Jesus. There's a man who lived his life for the glory of God, 100%. He calls us to do the same. Let's pray, then we'll sing.